with that, we are going to get into God's word. 1 Peter 4, 7 begins, the end of all things is near. So you don't need the money anyways. Okay, so go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. And we're going to be, be, be looking today at 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 9. Um, you can put your finger there, though, because I'm going to be, be switching in just a minute to Matthew 25. Now, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 now, and then uh, pray, and then we'll get launched. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, uh, it is a humbling task. I am to speak as one who speaks the utterances of God. We know not everything I say, um, it is not inspired. Lord, the parts that are your utterances are, are the part that are confirmed by Scripture that match up with what your word clearly teaches, and that's been my desire this week is to make sure I get your word right. Lord, I know our desire as a body, mine included, is that we would respond in a way that is appropriate, Lord, that our lives would be transformed. And we thank you, Father, for these uh, theological um, uh, applications that Peter brings from the fact that the end is near. So, Lord, please be conforming uh, our hearts into the likeness of your Son. Give us ears that are, are eager to hear, uh, hearts that are ready to apply. Help us to do this all in dependency, relying on Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And as, as Peter starts in verse 7, saying, The end of all things is near. It was interesting this past week to think about Peter and the kinds of things he had heard the Lord Jesus teach. And some of that was from Matthew 25. Jesus taught about how he was going to return and how the disciples and all the future generations of disciples, it turns out, needed to be ready and waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've actually seen that Peter's heart is very full as he writes to the sojourning saints. As, as these saints here are strangers in this earth, Peter's heart is full of this anticipation of Christ's return. We saw that in chapter 1, he talked about the inheritance reserved in heaven for us. He talked about the salvation ready to be revealed. He talked about the praise and glory and honor we receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, he, chapter 1, called us to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our hope is to be anchored on the fact that Christ is coming back. We're to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. He launches in the beginning of, of chapter 2 but with motives for how we're, we're, we're to live. And most of chapter 2 and 3 have a little less focus on the future. But in chapter 2, verse 12, he talked about keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, as they were being persecuted, 
they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And there we see Peter's focus again. The day of visitation, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end is near. So as they think about the end being near, all of their focus was to be on Christ's return. So he tells them in chapters 2 and 3 how they were to live because Christ is returning, because Christ is going to judge when he returns. Well, as we are seeing now in the beginning of chapter 4, Peter is really wrapping up the, the, the body of his letter, the, 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 the major portion of his letter. And we see that at the end of verse 11 as he launches into this praise to God, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, and begins in verse 12 of chapter 4 with beloved. And that's a good indication that he's starting a whole new section. Well, he ends the section with more of that eternal focus. The end of all things is near. And that was probably because of what Peter had just been teaching them in 1 Peter 4 verses 2 through 6 how they were to live the rest of the time in the flesh, he said in verse 2. Your time here is limited. Verse 3, the time already passed. You used to live for your desires, but that time has passed. Verse 5 talks about those who were persecuting them are going to have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so as he's writing and he's talking about how they're to live, it's just naturally all pointing towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 6 too. That he talks about even those who had the gospel preached to them, who have believed in the Lord Jesus but have since died, that they will live in spirit according to the will of God, that they have a future body to look forward to in which they will forever worship God the Father. So as Peter's writing this, this the, the, the section, he's clearly focused on the return of, the return of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to Matthew 25, because this is when Jesus was teaching Peter and his disciples before his death and, and, and resurrection. He was teaching Peter and the disciples about how they were to anticipate his return. And this must have been um, a strange process for them. You know, what did they think when they first heard this? Well, Jesus was still there. What did they think after he died? Were they thinking that that's his return? What did they think after they saw him ascend into the heavens? I think it was probably then that they're like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be thinking of what's written in Matthew 25. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 25. We'll turn back to 1 Peter in a minute. So Matthew 25, it begins with the, the, the parable of the ten virgins. We see in verse 13, Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You do not know when Christ the King is returning. We have the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 to, 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 to 30, where Jesus tells them how they are to live with stewardship of their talents. And we'll probably look at that passage more next time. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, though, describes how those who are ready to return who are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, how they live. And so I'm going to read Matthew 25, 31 to 46, because I think it'll inform for us what Peter's teaching in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Because he heard Jesus teach them about how they were to live. And he hears this stern warning we're about to read about those who are welcomed by the Lord Jesus and those who are departing from the Lord Jesus, who are sent to eternal destruction. So Peter heard this. And so we're going to see that it uh, is maybe the background of what he teaches in 1 Peter 4, verse 7 through 9. Okay, so Matthew 25, verses 31. 
But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is the return of Jesus Christ, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed, by, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Notice that, that, the hospitality there. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, those who've been declared righteous by God, those who have evidenced it in their lives, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, one of the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been, been prepared for the devils and his angels. He's talking about hell. For I was angry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As Peter's writing, these churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, we're, we're going to see, he very well may, may be thinking of this time that Jesus taught them this. We're going to see from the lives that he was calling them to, for the relationships that he was calling them to one another, for the calling them to hospitality and to giving. This is exactly, I can't promise is what he was thinking, but this kind of teaching leads right in to what, Jesus, what, what, what Peter calls them to. In 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9, we're going to see three instructions believers must follow today because Christ's return is near. See, when Jesus returns, he's going to separate those who know him from those who don't know him, from those who obey him from those who don't obey him, from those who love the saints from those who don't love the saints, from those who are hospitable from those who are not hospitable. And the stakes here is huge. It is an evidence of whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So today from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9, we're going to see three instructions believers must follow because Christ's return is near. And notice, I don't say they must follow to become right with God. This is not about your righteousness before God. This is about you living out that righteousness, about you becoming who you are in Christ Jesus. So some of you may be convicted as you go through this, and that's okay, because there's grace for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can be forgiven. Some of you may see the evidence of what God is doing in your life. And by God's grace, if you are saved, you, you will see some of that. So let's look at the first instruction here. The first instruction is to think clearly. Because Christ's return is near, we need to think clearly. He says the end of all things is near. And the end doesn't mean the destruction of all things, but the culmination of all things, the conclusion 
of all things. Everything that human history is moving towards, the end is near. Peter refers here to the next stage of human history. It's the next stage that begins with the return of Christ. It continues through Christ's thousand-year reign on earth. And it ends with the creation of a new heaven, a new earth, as we enter the eternal state. The scriptures is full of this language of Christ's return. In James 5, verse 8, he says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The book of Revelation begins and ends talking about the time being near. In Revelation 1, 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. That's how the book of Revelation with its future focus begins. And in the book ends. In 22, verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And there's many other verses we could add where the New Testament has this focus, and we've seen it many times in 1 Peter. The sojourning saint is waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it in, in verse 5, just in, in, in the last time we were in 1 Peter, how they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's the same thing Jesus was referring to in Matthew 25. We also saw the resurrection of those who believe in Jesus Christ in verse 6. All of these are, are things that will occur when Jesus Christ returns. This morning, brothers and sisters, we have to encourage ourselves. The end of all things is near. And that is good news for us who are in Christ Jesus. The stage of this life, and, and that's a picture we've been using in 1 Peter. How, how, how we're putting him on display so that the Gentiles might be ready to glorify him on the day of visitation, so that we can give an answer for the hope that we have. The stage of this life is temporary. The show is almost over. The curtain is beginning to be drawn. Time is running out. It's kind of like we're, we're, we're watching a game, and there's the two-minute warning. And it actually feels like that a lot, because all of us know the two-minute warning, you have no idea how much of the game is left, Right? And that, that's kind of what we're like. We, we've passed a two-minute warning, but there might be several commercial breaks. We're all kind of waiting. How long is this last portion going to be? And that's what the believers have been doing for 2,000 years. They've been waiting. How long, Lord? Come quickly. So what do we do while we're here? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. We have as our ambition, whether at home in heaven or absent here on earth, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that's not talking about us being judged, but us being rewarded. I mean, we, we will be judged. It'll be rewards for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. There'd be no punishment because Christ has taken that. But we look forward to standing before him. But there's a sobriety with that. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 10 through 14. It talks about each one's work in verse 13 will become evident. For the day when Christ returns will show it because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, if it was worthless and a waste, and really we're going to see the productivity of minds that aren't sober, minds that aren't self-controlled, minds that are really wasting their time, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. We're not talking about coming when Jesus Christ returns and being destroyed for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, but receiving reward from him for our obedience. 
But anytime we talk about the time being near, there is a warning here. The time is near. And we do not know when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. You do not know if Jesus Christ will return as shepherd to separate today. Do you know whether you will be a goat or a sheep? Whether you will be sent into judgment or whether you will be welcomed into his presence? The only way you can know is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That he is your only hope. Is he your only hope this morning? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you are saved? In Acts 2.38, after promising that Jesus was coming back, Peter says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I say that cautiously. The only way you know our confidence is in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. And yet, how did Jesus distinguish between the sheep and the goats? By their actions. And that is what he's going to do. Distinguish us from have we obeyed him or have we not? So there's a great question for you to ask, is which side am I going to be on? It's not just a question of, well, I believe in Jesus. It's, am I obeying the Lord Jesus Christ? Obeying the Lord Jesus Christ does not save you. But as we see, it will separate you. Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? The end is near. Now, that's a, 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 a conclusion, a therefore, for those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. And become right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to him by putting your faith in his sacrifice on your behalf. But there's a therefore for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a therefore here. And it says, the end of all things is near. Therefore. The therefore isn't to stare into the skies waiting for his return. The therefore isn't, well, he's coming back, so I'm going to quit my job and run to my credit cards. The fact of Christ's return, the fact of his judgment, of his future reign, should lead us to, Peter says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And these, are, 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 these, these words are really synonyms here. It describes the ongoing mindset of the saint. Sound judgment. The ESV has self-controlled. It's to be reasonable. To keep your head about you. To think clearly. My brother-in-law's, so my brother-in-law is British, so my wife's brother-in-law, but anyways, he's British, and his dad says, steady, 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 and that's what sound judgment is. It's being steady. It's thinking clearly. Wayne, Wayne, Wayne Gruden describes this word this way, having a sound mind, thinking about and evaluating situations maturely and and correctly. It's really bringing the wisdom of God's word to bear on the situations of life. Titus 2.6, in Titus, Paul urges the young men, he tells Titus to urge the young men to be sensible. Have sound judgment. Be reasonable. Don't get carried away, young men, as young men are known to. In Matthew, in, in uh, Mark 5.15, the same word uh, was, was used to describe a man who had been demon-possessed, but is now sitting in his right mind. So you see a, a very visual contrast there. All the craziness of the demon-possessed is contrast to one who is sober-minded, who, I mean, who has a sound judgment, who's self-controlled in our right mind. 
It's to not let yourself be dominated by anything except the truth of God's word. To not let yourself be dominated by fears, by passions, by concerns. And disregarding any topic, it could be not, don't be dominated by the stock market. Don't be dominated by politics. Don't be dominated by injustice. Don't be dominated by panicking when you hear the news. Don't get sucked up into conspiracy theories of flat earth. Don't waste money in the pursuit of the best possible experiences. Don't overvalue free agencies. You guys know what I'm referring to. Don't get sucked up in all those things. Be of sound judgment. Be self-controlled. Don't, don't go, don't waste your life going after the extra 1% of whatever experience it is you're craving. He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And spirit in the New, in the, in the new American Standard is in italics because the word is added there. That word spirit isn't there. But if it just has the word sober, you just think, well, this is about not drinking. But this is really a metaphor here. So the, the, the New American Standard makes it clear. But be of sober spirit. The lexicon has it as free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, from excess, passion, rashness, confusion. Be well-balanced, self-controlled. Don't give in to fuzzy thinking. You know, as your mind gets addled by all the concerns that we have, all the fears that we can have, all the pleasures we could enjoy. Don't panic about how evil America is becoming. Don't panic about what could happen to Christians in America next. Don't, don't, don't get overwhelmed about potential of future earthquakes. Don't get drunk on doing home repairs on purchasing cell phones, on planning birthday parties, on getting into the right college, on losing weight. Don't be obsessed with those kinds of things. Jesus wants you to respond to the truth of his return with clear thinking, with biblical thinking, the kind of thinking that values what is eternal that organizes its day around the commands of Scripture. What does God want me to do today? That's sober-minded thinking. That believes that losing your life for the Lord Jesus Christ is better than saving it. That's clear thinking. That believes that the blessed person is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That's sober-minded thinking. That knows the light is not found in Netflix. You know, stock markets and Netflix, none of those things are wrong in themselves. But sober-minded puts those things in its place. Earthquake preparedness may be fine in itself, but it needs to be in its place. Now, this sober-minded, this, this sound judgment and sober-mindedness has a purpose, and it's fascinating. So in 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. That's fascinating. I didn't see that coming. Have you noticed times of prayerlessness in your life? What kind of things lead to you being prayerless? I think it's the times when our minds get fuzzy, when we get addled, when we forget what the real main things are. 
And maybe it is simply the pursuit of a sin, which is often when we're prayerless, but maybe it's over-concerned about finances. Maybe it's looking to purchase a new home or the pursuit of a new job, and you spend all the time on the job website. Or maybe you become consumed with a hobby or worried about the future. All of those things can lead to to prayerlessness. So I love what Peter says here. Be of sound judgment and sober because you guys need to do something. You guys need to be praying. You're facing persecution for your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying. So what should you be doing? You need to be praying so that you pray more effectively. Be of sound judgment so you pray effectively, so that you pray purposefully, so that you pray intelligently, so that you pray consistently so that you pray according to God's will, so that you pray the kinds of things that Jesus teaches us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we pray for God's glory to be on earth, for his kingdom to come, for God to be as treated as holy and awesome as he is, that doesn't happen when our minds are all fudgy and fuzzy with all the concerns and all the pleasures of this world. Give us this day our daily bread. We don't pray for... (laughs) Yep. Uh, We're working on that, by the way. So, uh, but, you know, it's a great example of those who are fuzzy-minded stare at the rats. No, I'm kidding. And someone's going to be listening to this and wonder what's going on. Hey, if it falls on me, can someone come and uh, rescue me? Okay, for anyone who doesn't know what's going on, we do have a problem with rats. We got in an exterminator. The rats are... uh, are, um, just nominal Christians. They only come out on Sunday. Okay. Uh, so those who are sober-minded pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because why? It's not because they're like, but I've got tons of money. Because they understand that, that, that they're dependent upon the Lord. They pray, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. They pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They say, God, if you're not watching me, if, if you let me go towards the sin that, I, that in myself, my own strength, I can't say no to, I need your help to obey you. It's, see, being praying while being consumed with this world will not lead to these kinds of dependent and humble and passionate prayers for God's glory. So how's your prayer life been? What have you been praying for? As you're praying for these things, are you praying for his kingdom and his glory? Now, Paul uses different words here, but notice how quickly he goes from telling them to be alert in their prayer to praying for gospel progress. In Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Notice how Paul, he's advocating them to pray. So what does he it just launch into? Pray that I've got boldness. Pray for the kingdom to advance. Pray for the gospel to go out. Pray for souls to be saved. Is that the kind of prayers you've been praying? Is that what you've been praying for VBS and praying for the Czech team and praying for the Malaysia team and praying for your neighborhood? Those those kinds of prayers are going to come from you being sober-minded, from you having sound judgment, from you being self-controlled. P. 
Peter knows that these, these saints are going through persecution. Like, you guys need to pray. We need the Lord to sustain us. So if we are going to be ready for the Lord Jesus' return, if we are going to please him when he returns, when we have the, uh, when we have the, the fruit that he's going to expect, we need to think clearly. We also need to love fervently. We need to think clearly. We also need to love fervently. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. We don't fear the end of the world like those who have no hope, right? Those who don't have hope are pushing one another out of the way to grab the life jacket, right? We're not like that. We're more concerned about our brothers and, Jesus, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ as we see the day approaching. The certainty of Christ's return leads us to love his people more, those with whom we're going to share eternity with. Whatever differences, whatever disagreements we have with our brothers and sisters here now, it is so minor compared to the eternity we're going to be sharing, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Peter begins verse 8 saying, above all. And it's not like he's saying, oh, you need to do this command, but not the other the other commands I'm giving. But it is the most essential Christian virtue, love is. Love is inseparable from the Christian faith. There's a, there, there's a powerful verse in 1 John, 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. 1 John 3.23, he parallels this is the commandment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I get it. And love one another. Oh, it's really interesting. As, as, as parallel statements. Loving one another is inseparable from what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.14, Paul says something similar. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Galatians 5.14, Paul says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you can imagine that this was a unique challenge for these persecuted Christians. There was already some Christians, just like theirs in this body. You know, someone rubs you the wrong way. It's difficult to have, your conversation isn't easy. But they had the temptation, too, of maybe distancing themselves from that person. Right? That, that person's the object of persecution. Do I have to make life any harder on myself already? Do, do I really have to love this? So it's just the temptation could be just to withdraw. Peter says, no, above all, keep fervent in your love. Having fervent love, ongoing love. This love, the, 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 the lexicon describes it as a warm regard for and an interest in another. It's to cherish them to have affection for them. It's more, than, it's more than feeling, but it does include emotion. It's the word for having satisfaction in something, taking pleasure in them. See, it's not just like, oh, you're a Christian, I'm going to love you. It's that even though relationships could be strained, even though that you're working through conflict, your heart is going to be warmed by this person. 
You love them. It's a, 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 a love that prefers, that makes biblical distinctions, that, that, that chooses its object freely. It's a love that says, I love you. Not because of what you do for me, not because of how you're like me, not because of the fun that we have, not because we see movies together. I love you because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a love that appreciates and values. It's a love that chooses and takes pleasure in. It's a love that is devoted to. And this love, Peter describes it as fervent love. For the second time in this letter, he said in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Our love is to be fervent, to be eager, to be constant. It is the way that the uh, saints prayed for Peter to be released from prison when he was sitting on death row. They fervently prayed for him, and that's how we are to love. You know, like the end is near. Fervently love one another. It's a devoted love. It's constant. And that love is to be fervent, to be committed, to be engaged and eager, regardless of relational challenges. Regardless of how someone's offended you, how someone maybe hasn't encouraged you, maybe how someone has let you down. That kind of, of love looks at those things as, as opportunities to show that you've been united with the Lord Jesus Christ rather than opportunities to write someone off. To, to be kind of, to pull back and to be distant. Now the object of love in verse 8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. That one another is not all people, although Scripture does teach about loving all people. The focus of this verse is love for God's people, your fellow sojourners, those, those aliens who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, those who are on this Christian journey with you, your fellow pilgrims. Specifically, though, he's writing to churches, and it's those in your church here. It's loving one another in this church. It is one of the sad things. I know that, that there's life circumstances that people have to find different churches at times, but it's sad when someone leaves. It's sad when someone leaves because this is the place where we are supposed to love one another. This letter here is to love one another. It doesn't mean that they're not a Christian anymore, but when someone leaves just because either they're not feeling loved or, or, or I mean, there's all kinds of bad reasons that people leave. I want to know, are, are you fervently loving one another? Are you fervently loving me? Are you being fervently loved by others? Loving with this, with this choosing and devoted love. In this word, one another, there's no room for limitations. It's not just those who have common interest, those who have, sim have similar backgrounds, those who make the same kind of schooling choices. It's not just those people who make you feel good about yourself. It is all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Without exception, fervent love. It's such a good challenge to keep working at this. It's not natural in the old man. It is natural, though, in the new man. And so that's good news. If, if you want to do this, that is who you are in Christ Jesus. 
You have this capacity in him, if you have new life in him, to have that kind of love. A love that is not bound by ethnicity, a love that is not bound by family. It is a love that is, that is in this blood of Jesus Christ that we share. This is the kind of fervent love that we are to have. We can't, we, can't, we can't do this without the Lord's help. Now, that fervent love, and he gives a reason why. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another because your, because your love, because that love covers a multitude of sins. It's kind of like he says, hey, I know Isaiah. You're going to need fervent love if you're going to love Isaiah. You're going to need a love that covers a multitude of sins, and that's true for all of us. We're going to have to have fervent love if we are going to stick together if we are going to accomplish this kingdom purpose together, if we are going to overlook offenses. And that's really what Peter's talking about here. It's, it's, it's overlooking the sins of, of others, not calling. And we see this, this, this kind of language in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Doesn't keep... That, that list of saying, oh, Isaiah's offended me here and here and here and here, and here's this list. I need to call him to account. Now, you do need at times to confront your brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's not because, because it's, just, it's just personal. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, there may be things you need to talk to someone about, and if I ever offend you you need to talk to me, please come to me, right? We don't want relationship to be broken. There's times where you need to do that, but love covers over a multitude of sins. The general going out of life is where we're fervently loving one another, and people who are married know this. You're, you're looking over all kinds of offenses. People who have children, they are offensive. I'm sorry, guys. They're offensive. Some of you, you're offensive, right? My daughter has no idea how many offenses, but love overlooks offenses, it covers a multitude of sins. Now, we need to give some, some caveats there. It's not talking about, oh, love covers over a multitude of sins. So someone was abused in our church, but we're going to love, and that's going to cover up the sexual abuse that happened between someone in leadership. No, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. Love uh, guarantees people's safety. Love protects people who are vulnerable to attack. Love does not sweep everything under the rug. But it does mean you don't have to confront every small time someone sins against you. You will, though, have to confront some sins. It's just as true, and there's other portions of Scripture. Love means you will go to your brothers and sisters and say, Brother and sister, I see the sin in your life, and I am concerned. I'm concerned that, you're, that, 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 that if you follow this, you're going to wander away from the Lord. Or I'm concerned that your ministry is being hampered. So love does confront, but love doesn't confront every sin. Every insult, every hurt feeling, every misunderstanding. And it's not just because you're making excuses for people. It's not just, oh, well, he's just like that. He's abrasive. No. When, when you see a, a character of someone, you, you need to go to them and say, brother, I'm concerned. But in the general ongoings of, of, of life, we're going to sin against one another often, and love covers a multitude of sins. Peter there is, uh, um, he's not quoting, but he's referencing Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife. It's really easy to cause problems. It's really easy to, to throw a match 
um, the gasoline in relationships, right? There's, there, there's already some gasoline spilt. There's, there, there's some offenses. Let's just make this whole thing go up in smoke. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Again, it's not talking about hiding sin. It's not talking about, uh, about allowing people to continue being hurt. But it is talking about not holding people accountable for every perceived slight, every offense, every hurt feeling, every time we feel ignored, every time we feel hurt. If that were the case, the church would split again and again and again and again and again until you're on a very lonely island. The churches in Asia Minor couldn't afford to be split apart. They couldn't afford to let grudges fester. See, Satan loves to isolate God's people. Satan loves to isolate God's people. He would love nothing more than any one of you to be offended by any number of people here who don't meet your needs so that you stop going to church and sit at home alone on Sunday morning offended. For, for saints going through persecution as those were in Asia Minor, the temptation to return to the world, it would be easier. Do I really need to go there where people are going to ignore me or people are going to hurt me? How many saints leave a local body because they haven't been loved fervently? But at the same time, do any saints leave a local body? Of course, there's, there's, there's other good reasons. Because they don't love fervently, right? If we are loving each other fervently, we're going to stay together unless God has really made clear it's time to go. Which, of course, we say this. You should always talk to your elders about first. So if we are going to be ready for the return of Christ. If we're going to be ready for the end being near, we need to think clearly. Sorry, I totally lost my outline points here at some point. We need to think clearly. We need to love fervently. And this next one, I couldn't find one good phrase, so you get two. You need to welcome warmly and give gladly. You need to welcome warmly and give gladly. And the verse is really pretty simple. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. We need to welcome warmly and give gladly. And I think between those two phrases, you've got a good idea of the kind of hospitality that is being talked about here in 1 Peter 4, verse 9. We see in the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and in Titus 1, 8 that mature saints are hospitable. That's why elders are called to be hospitable. That is what mature saints do. But that doesn't mean the only elders are to be hospitable. That's just a hallmark of Christian, Christian maturity is hospitality. It is commanded of all saints, as we see here. Be hospitable. Every one of you, be hospitable to one another. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are commanded to be hospitable. Now, we'll talk more about what that means. To be hospitable is to be fond of guests. It is to be generous to them. It is to be welcoming them warmly. The root of the word is a love of strangers, but it's really not talking about loving strangers here because it says, be hospitable to one another. It is true of strangers that we, when a guest comes, we should be known for hospitality as a church. They should be welcomed warmly. But Peter's specifically referring here to the relationships that you have within 
the body. Once again, Peter says that we're to be hospitable to one another with, without distinction, to one another, to every person. Now, that doesn't mean you're not hospitable until you have every single person here into your home. But it is good to ask, as I think about being hospitable, are there saints around me that I don't want over? Are there people here I'd rather not spend time with? It's a piercing heart question. It's a great opportunity to ask the Lord for forgiveness. If really you've isolated yourself with just a few friends, it's one of the care group has so many strengths. It's one of the dangers of care group. You get to just limit yourself to a group of people. Well, that one another here is not just your care group. It's this body. Now, in the ancient world, this, this, this warmly welcoming and this, and this giving gladly was essentially what was, what was essential for missionaries. Inns were expensive, they were dangerous, they were sometimes not very pure places. When, 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 when a traveling missionary, including the apostles, was going through, they needed to rely on, on the hospitality of people. And we see that in uh, Acts 16, after Lydia gets saved. She gets baptized, and the next thing she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you believe I'm, a, I'm really saved, come into my house and stay. Right? So right away, she is warmly welcoming, gladly giving to the apostles, saying, you can stay at my house while you do your missionary work to, to, to Paul. In, in 3 John, verses 5 through 8, we, we see some of what was going on in the ancient world. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to you, and they, and they have testified to your love before the church. So people are coming, and they can tell about your love before the church. And then it says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. He's talking about supporting missionaries. And we all, when Sam and Amanda come back, are going to be fighting to say, who's going to house them? Right? If it doesn't turn into a physical fight. No, anyways. But, 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 but we saw, and I can say this because, because they're not here. The Liaos with their five children hosting the Lees with their four children. That is what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about, oh, we need a certain size home to have guests over. It is about this, they have a need and I'm going to meet it. It's a willingness to house missionaries. It's a willingness to have church meetings in your house. Now, uh, in this world and in this size body, we all can't meet in one house. Our care groups do, though. So praise the Lord for those of you who host in your homes. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19 describes how Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with a church that is in their house. Colossians 4, 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. It's what people do with big houses. They host care groups. There was also perhaps, and we can only guess, a potential need to house those who were suffering for their commitment to Christ. That as believers were being persecuted, as they perhaps lost their jobs or lost business. We, 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 we know later in Hebrews it talks about them uh, having their, their, their property being confiscated. Perhaps some of that was going on in here. Our, 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 this, this, this family, and you, you can imagine one of the cities of Asia Minor. This family has lost, he, he's lost his job and they can't afford their home anymore and they need a place to stay. And every hand in the church is supposed to go up and say, they can stay with me. 
That's what it's talking about. Warmly welcoming and giving gladly. Without complaint. As one commentator said, the, uh, uh, the saying, and you may have, 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 have heard, excuse me, that uh, house guests and fish are alike, they, they both start stinking after three days. That has nothing to do with this, right? That is not a biblical worldview. It's without complaint. Not begrudging the expense or the inconvenience. For them in the ancient world, this would have been costly. This may mean that family has half as much food because they are sharing their food for that day with others in the body. 2 Corinthians 9.7 talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. They were supposed to give gladly. So are you, brothers and sisters, being hospitable to the saints? Now, that may most obviously be having people into your home. It's making others feel welcomed into your life, into your home, regardless of what you can afford to feed them. It's, it's not because you have the amount of time or an excellent cook to put on this incredible meal that you can invite someone to. Like, like Instagram is like the death of hospitality because it ruins our expectations of what it means to be welcoming. If you don't have a home, do you have budget to take someone out? And it doesn't have to be to be a fancy restaurant. It can just be, especially, to in and out Personally, we would love to have every one of you into our home. But I would also love to be invited into every one of your homes. But I'm not just saying that for me. I want you to think and say, I want to be invited into everyone's home. And I want each of, I guess, everyone else to be thinking, I want to invite whoever that imaginary person is into my home. So that we're really busy spending time together. And of course, as we do that, we're just not going to feast on food, we're going to feast on God's word together and pray for one another and speaking in one another's lives. See, I know we are all limited. We all can't do that. But if we all do some of that, then everyone in our body will be welcomed. Now, it's no excuse here. Uh, it doesn't say, be hospitable to one another if you're a good cook. Or be hospitable to one another if you're an extrovert. But introverts are left off. It's okay. And I give you all the freedom to serve someone mac and cheese that comes in a blue box. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Okay? You can serve that to your guests. It is better to make someone feel welcome and to serve them easy food than to not have them into your house. It is okay to serve grilled cheese. I'm just thinking of all the kinds of things that I grew up eating. Whatever you grew up eating, serve it to someone. Whatever you eat in your home, serve that. If you don't have a home, take someone out. People with little children will not say no to you if you say, uh, you know, I don't have enough room for you, but can, but can I bring a meal to your house? So singles, you can get in on this too. Some of you might have a room you're renting. You can still be hospitable. It's not just about food. It can be about having coffees. It can be about what you do here. But it is, but it is commanded. Invite someone to a picnic. And, and 
And I trust by God's grace that none of us will turn up our nose at what is being fed after I've said this, right? You'll be thankful. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen. So I'm sorry if we get invited for some strange meals. No, I'm kidding. But invite, invite us over, and we want to invite you over, and you guys do that all for one another. And do that outside of your care groups. It's summer break. So make some new friends. Love wants to spend time with people. Love fervently. Now, remember the context for these commands. I'm running late, I'm sorry. Brothers and sisters, the end is near. The end is closer today than it was. You have one less day after today to be hospitable. One less day here on this earth of loving fervently. We know Jesus is going to return. And we saw in Matthew 25 what that return is going to look like. He's going to distinguish. And it won't be based on your confession. It won't be based on saying, well, I believe that Jesus took the punishment of my sins. It says he's going to distinguish based on your obedience. And specifically, your love. And how you demonstrate that love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to read it again, Matthew 25, verses 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I know you belong to me because of your love, because of your hospitality. You're mine, I see it in you. But we also see the opposite, what happens to the goats. They themselves also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Jesus, if you were here, we totally would have had you over. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did, it, you did not do it for me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the background of Peter saying the Lord is near. He knew Jesus Christ was coming back. And so he's encouraging them. He's urging them, be ready for his return. Live out what you know you ought to be doing. Put that fervent love into practice. Be hospitable. Find unique ways to do it. You can welcome warmly by writing someone an encouraging email, right? I mean, it's not just about, I mean, I don't want anyone who just had a baby to feel bad that they haven't had any, anyone over yet, right? This is, this is not about, about a guilt trip. This is about loving fervently. But it is the kind of language Jesus uses as the ongoing pattern of lives. So are you ready for Christ's return? If you are, you will think clearly so you can pray, so that you will persevere. You will love fervently, and you will welcome warmly and give gladly. Let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for just such a teachable body. And Lord, is one of the things I love so much about these brothers and sisters is that they, is that when your word says hard things, uh, when it raises the bar Lord, I see looks of uh, teachableness, and I thank you for that. Lord, we come before you humbled. Uh, Lord, we've already confessed uh, we cannot love fervently one another without your Son. We cannot uh, overlook offenses without your Son. Lord, that we uh, cannot be hospitable. Uh, we can be hospitable over a basketball game or something, 
We can be hospitable over all kinds of things, but to be hospitable to this body because we are in Jesus Christ, Lord, we can't do that without you. And so please, Lord, show evidence in our lives by our obedience here, by our sober-mindedness, by our sound judgment. Father, help us to demonstrate that we are thoroughly convinced that Jesus Christ is returning and that we are totally ready for, for his return. Lord, I pray by your grace, Lord, that our little kids in our homes, Lord, for those of us who are married, would see this, Lord, but that also our kids uh, would, 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 would see um, those of us who don't have kids knocking on our doors with meals because they want to be part of our lives too, Lord. May our lives all be knit with one another as we see your son returning. Lord, we thank you that he is going to return. Lord, I pray, Father, for those here this morning who are not ready. Lord, and um, maybe there is uh, not just conviction of displeasing you, Lord, but conviction that we are markedly different than what's being described here, that we don't have fervent love. I pray, Father, for those who, who don't have this kind of love for the saints, who are incapable of overlooking offenses, who have never been hospitable, who don't warmly give, Lord, that, that they would look and say, do I belong to you? Lord, and if any don't belong to you, Lord, may they see that you are sufficient, uh, that, that your grace is sufficient, that your son's blood is sufficient to cover them, and that they can have new life in Christ alone. Lord, please uh, be changing us, be uniting our, our hearts, Lord. May it just, Lord, we know that at times you're going to have to take saints away from this body. May it just be, be grueling leaving because of how intensely they are loved here, Lord. Uh, and I think that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.